Welcome to this season of the VMP Anthology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Anderson. For this, our 16th season, we're journeying into the world of excitement that is Cadet Records, the imprint of Chicago's Fame Chess Records that, for almost 10 years, was home to some of the headiest and most ambitious jazz, soul, and rock music of the 1960s and 70s. Through the eight albums included in the box, we'll celebrate Cadet's Anything Goes spirit as we chart career highlights for Etta James and Muddy Waters, the sharp creative left turns of Ramsey Lewis and Dorothy Ashby, new beginnings for the Rotary Connection and Terry Callier, the underappreciated joys of the Harold Land Quintet and the Shades of Brown, and the colorful cast of boundary-pushing arrangers and producers who helped to shape the label's singular sound. While this anthology marks the first, well, anything specifically dedicated to telling the story of Cadet Records, it would be impossible to explain the label's meteoric rise and tragic decline without contextualizing it within the larger orbit of Chess Records. And who better to tell that history than Marshall Chess? As the son of label co-founder Leonard Chess, Marshall spent his childhood assembling chess LPs and shadowing his dad on business trips, eventually heading up international distribution deals and producing records for his own sublabel, Cadet Concept, in the late 60s. To put it bluntly, Marshall Chess has forgotten more about chess and cadet than most people could ever hope to know about the legendary music and musicians that brought his family business to record collections across the world. One last note before I turn it over to Marshall. You'll notice that the audio quality is a bit spotty in places. When Marshall and I first spoke, I had expected to ask him a few clarifying questions for my listening notes and follow up with him to tape more formal interviews after the fact. In reality, Marshall spoke with me for almost three and a half hours during our first interview, dropping a slew of nuggets and anecdotes that were simply too good to leave on the cutting room floor. We'll save the real high fidelity for the records themselves. How about that? You know, my uncle would say, and they were from a town called Muttle, and he said the only music we ever heard was some guy in town had a wind-up patrol, and when he'd play it in the summer, half the village would come outside his window to hear recorded music. When they came to America, my grandfather had a scrap metal yard, and my father would say, and my uncle told me, he'd say, you know, my, my grandfather would hit us with a strap because we'd, we'd leave the place, and there was a, uh, we heard music. There was a black church with an upright piano and a tambourine and that kind of thing, and we would just stand there transfixed. The first blues was the jukebox. The after the liquor store was a corner tavern. And then, and that's where, that's where he saw, wow, there's these people love, you know, they love to spend money on entertainment. And then from that corner tavern came the nightclub, the Macamba with live music. And that's where Aristocrat came to record. Anyway, that's where he saw recording and records. And that label had Muddy signed to him, Muddy Waters. It's like a folk singer. Basically, he had done Alan Lomax's recording, you know. So that's how all that started. And then they saw live music. And then my father became a salesman for uh, Aristocrat for two years, almost three years. Then he bought, bought, bought out the partners and started Chess in 1950. Within a few years of Leonard Chess buying out Aristocrat, he and his brother slash business partner, Phil, found enough success in Chess Records' Electric Blues to start a couple of imprint labels, Checker and Argo. Early on, Checker releases were basically indistinguishable from Chess's, but Argo, the sublabel that would become Cadet, was started specifically for the company to break into new markets like jazz and pop. And though the label was initially overseen by early A&R's Dave Usher and Jack Tracy, Argo operated on the same kind of handshake deals that were the Chess Brothers' M.O. The jazz guys recorded at night. Why? That's how they would get them cheap to record. They would have gigs in Chicago. Jack would know all the schedules 
They would, so we call them. You want to make an extra 500 a man after the gig. That's why so many of those early Argos were real jazz. These guys had just come off the stage, no notes, no right. Wanted to make the 500. High by then, drinking, smoking. And they would come to the studio. And many times it was my job to go to get the signatures of the session the, before I had the checks. Before they got the session check and the leader's check, they had to sign the art, you know, the recording. It was all a one, two-page thing. And I remember Mr. Samuels would come from the AF of M Union. Late at night, I would go. And I, that, so they wanted their checks right then because they were leaving town. It was like that was a, a lot of the way, a lot at the beginning, you know, after a while, once it got established and they had book sessions and et cetera. But that's how that, a lot of the early stuff was, you know. It took Argo two years to finally score a hit jazz album. But when Ahmed Jamal's Live at the Pershing, But Not For Me, was released in 1958, it changed everything for the label, almost overnight. That was one of my first jobs when I would stuff the records. Because we used to get, the vinyl came separately from the covers. And the covers were made in two spots. The back was always black and white, glued to a cardboard color front. And uh, we used to have, we had our own shrink tunnel. And I remember on weekend, I would because I was in school then, very young, 13, 14. But on weekends, they had me working the shrink tunnel because distributors would come from Detroit, Cleveland. It was that hot of an album. You know, they there was no overnight FedEx. You know, it was 10 days packing it, taking it. We used to send it by Greyhound bus, actually, to the all through the Midwest. As Argo and Chess at Large continued racking up hits in the late 50s and early 60s, Marshall's role in the growing company shifted. He wasn't just packing records or buying coffees at Bat's restaurant across the street. He was watching his father and uncle, learning how to produce, learning to love the thrill of a hit record. You know, that was one of the, my father didn't know how to describe it that way. But when I remember, because of fear, the first time he told me to go in the studio, um, I have to go out, your uncle's not here. I said, well, what do I do? Just tell him to take another one. I said, what? Just say, take another one. And I said, okay. He said, you know, if you don't tell them that, they're just going to sit around and talk shit. He said, one of those tastes will be a motherfucker. And I did that. And that's what he didn't know. He didn't know. He didn't describe it like I did as becoming one. He knew the magic when he felt it. If you hear him produce, that's what he was looking for. He knew when that happened. He did. He would been at live concerts when... All of a sudden, it's a magical moment. Come on, but in the studio, it's even more direct. When you get really down to it, I'm like, I'm, I mean, there's nothing to a record man like a hit. You have a hit. It's like I always say, well, what's it like? It's like those old time movies where the oil field is gushing, and the guy's laying in it, you know, black and oil. You know, you have a hit because before, you know, again, I'll take it to old times. There were just telephones, um, no express mail. When you would have a hit, something like osmosis would happen. And everyone on everyone's desk, there was like four of us. So like on four or five of us, we had these pads with carbon paper, these little pads. And we'd all take calls. And when a record would break, you, you know, I don't know. We don't, we could never, I, to this day, how does it happen? It would be like, like COVID, city to city. And then all of a sudden it would break and we'd yell down the Boston 5,000, someone would yell, oh my God, we'd hear it breaking. It was like the oil well. It would be so exciting. Everyone knew they were going to get a good bonus that year, you know, when you had a hit. But then you'd have slow times where you'd be freaked out. 
I remember we 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 were we were we had we were such a dry period, and that's when we had Rescue Me became such a big hit, and we needed that, and we recorded Rescue Me at Fontella Bass, and we knew that that had a chance to be a big hit. That was a hot record, and I remember taking a zip. Okay, I took a Zippo lighter, and burnt the brown paper, and then we mailed the dish like hot hot with the burnt edge, and I mailed those hundreds of them. I burnt. That smell, I can smell it telling you about it. By the time Marshall was singeing promo copies of Fontella Bass's hit single Rescue Me in the mid-60s, Chess was entering a major state of transition. Marshall made valuable inroads with the Rolling Stones, who famously booked studio time at Terramar during their first American tour in the summer of 1964. The next year, the Ramsey Lewis trio released The In Crowd on Argo, an album that would ultimately break up the group, but not before making the pianist a household name. But it wasn't just record buyers who were becoming more aware of Argo. A British classical music label by the same name threatened legal action against Chess for trademark infringement. And at that time, we had a, a new, sort of a newish employee at Chess, a guy named Dick LaPalm. And we decided that uh, we wouldn't fight the lawsuit. We needed a new name. And Dick, if I remember, Dick came up with some whack, oh, what the fuck was that name? Some weird name, Epogee or... A- Apogee? Oh, yeah, that was it. Some weird name. Dick came up with some weird name that my father couldn't even pronounce it or said, how do you spell it? I remember that. We had we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs then. Anyway, uh, the story was that it was Chess Checker. My father said Cadet. And then we had a record, we had a record distributor uh, named Cadet. And I think, uh, if I remember right, we asked permission if we could use the name for the label. And the guy said, sure. And that's how it became Chess Checker Cadet. Just like that. We needed the name quick. We wanted to get it over with. We didn't want a lawsuit, uh, especially with an English and the whole complicated part of it, you know. Yeah, that was that quick. I never really liked it at all. I, don't, I never liked the name Cadet. I, I never liked Cadet. I didn't like it for some reason. It reminded me of something military. I don't know. Military. I don't know. And just like that, Argo Records became Cadet Records. But if the name were all that had changed, you wouldn't be listening to this right now. A few months after the renaming, Chess announced that it would be moving from its cozy quarters at 2120 South Michigan Avenue to a massive, eight-story complex around the block in the near south side of Chicago. And Chess had plans that were just as big. We had moved to this 320 East 21st, the most amazing, no film of it, unfortunately, the most amazing music building in the world. Why? It was eight stories. It used to be the factory and offices of a company called Revere and Wollensack Camera, making like reel-to-reel tape recorders. And uh, we bought the building, had like the fat manufacturing, loading dock, eight stories, elevators. And we built in that building a complete music facility from executive offices, a full record pressing plant, and a plating plant to make our own stampers, a printing plant that we can, we, we got four color uh, prints. We, we printed, but we could print the titles and all that on the four color backs. We had Studio A, B, the full studios. We had Studio C, which was, I let the musicians work themselves. That was on the eighth floor. That was where they could come. I hired a full-time like the electric mud rhythm section, basically every day's salary to come just to jam with their own tape recorder. It was a full, a full operation where you could record 
in the morning and make a record and manufacture it all in one in one place. With its expansive top-of-the-line studios, rehearsal rooms, and record presses, Chess's new headquarters at 320 East 21st Street was imagined as a creative factory. But one of the most pivotal moments in Cadet Records' brief history came in a chance encounter in the small cafeteria on the building's eighth floor. So as things progressed at Chess, and my own ego, I'm going to laugh at mine the way I was back there, but as my own self progressed, I decided I moved up to the eighth floor. And it was, that was the floor where the old owner of that woolen sack had a big panel. I wanted that office, big panel office, you know, you know, giant, but, you know, like, like, you know, like a, a big, like the president of a big company. So I had that big office and I had all the writers. I set up eight rooms with, with upright pianos, reel-to-reel tape recorders. I had a staff of writers with a blackboard. I'd write down Etta Jane name. We need tunes for coming in two weeks to make demos, you know, I set up this whole thing. So then we had on that floor a cafeteria, like a little automat. We didn't want them to leave the building. They wanted to captive musicians. We had the first coffee, no microwave, but coffee machines, candy bars, all that kind of stuff, cold sandwiches. Um, and I was in there. So one of my jobs at that time was, at that time, in order to copyright a tune, you had to send a lead sheet. It was before the Library of Commerce accepted a recorded copy. You needed to actually get a lead sheet written out, musical, with the lyrics and the notes. And I had numerous people in Chicago. I think I would pay 15 bucks a lead sheet to get it written, which is probably like $75 now. You know, it wasn't nothing, you know. Um, But it was cheap. It wasn't big. And I heard about a guy named Charles Stepney, you know, could write really good, who wanted, you know, when you were looking for guys to write lead sheets. So... I made a meeting with Charles Stepney in that cafeteria. And he came up, he was like a chubby guy, and he had this big thing under his arm, I said, big manuscript folder. And you know, yeah, I can do it. Oh, that's easy. Just give me a tape, you know, I'll knock it out for 50. It's fantastic. We like, so I said, well, what's that? What is all that? He said, that's my symphony. I said, you what? He said, yeah, I have a symphony. He said, I, he was in music college in Chicago. And I, to graduate, I had to write this piece. This is my piece. I said, you wrote that and arranged that? I said, he, I said, yeah. I said, uh, well, have you ever heard it? He said, only in my head. So I said, great. I said, well, Charles, you and I got to talk. So we, over the next few weeks, when he came with the lead, we sat down and talked in that cafeteria. And I told him I had this idea uh, of an album for people who were on LSD and having bad trips. I wanted to make a soft psychedelic album, you know? And uh, I, and I, when I knew, and I wanted to be arranged with strings and, you know, that was part of it. Would he work with me? You know, he was thrilled to work with me, you know? Yeah, of course, I'll do anything I can. That soft psychedelic album would become the self-titled debut of the Rotary Connection. In late 1967, Marshall announced that the album would be the first release on Cadet Concept, a new chess sub-label that would be entirely curated and often co-produced by Marshall, along with Charles Stepney and Gene Barge. For Marshall, in his early 20s at the height of the psychedelic era, the label was an opportunity to use chess's well of resources and talent to not only tap into a new market, but an entire social movement. Uh, I just saw this growing white 60s movement, you know, come on. I was one of them, you know. 
So I just saw this growing thing and I just wanted to expand into it with the same creativity and originality as my other, as my father's stuff and push the blues. I wanted, I wanted very much to introduce that long haired pot smoking generation to muddy it to the blues. That was the whole concept of electric mud was to get, and it worked. I mean, I've gotten tons of people who said that was my entree to the blues, you know. Whether or not you're a long-haired pot smoker, stick around. On the next episode of the VMP Anthology podcast, we'll dive deeper into one of the strangest entry points into the blues imaginable, Muddy Waters' infamous 1968 album, Electric Mud. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is hosted, written, and produced by Steven Anderson. It's executive produced by Andrew Winnestorfer, and it's produced and edited by Jim Hankey from the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. A special thank you to Marshall Chess for being so generous with his time and for helping with this podcast and the liner notes, because without him, this box wouldn't have happened and these albums wouldn't have been made in the first place. So thank you, Marshall, for your contribution to music history. And thank you again for your help making this project a reality. We leave you with this as we always do. Listen to more Fill Up Church. <laughs>